Good evening and welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we ask Steve Thompson on how you doing, big producer. <laughs> Everything's good, man. How you doing? Doing good. Uh, long time in the making this. I want to thank you for giving some time tonight. For people don't know, Steve has produced probably uh, a bazillion albums you've heard. Um, everything from Sepultura to Talk Talk to Alphaville to Duran Duran to Cinderella, Blues Traveler, David Bowie. I mean, pretty much anything that you've heard is done it maybe we could talk about a few of those tonight and maybe pick his brain a little bit tonight um so i guess the, the first thing i want i'm going to put out there right now is is um a little backstory so steve has gotten a lot of grief over the years about <laughs> about metallica so just so we're clear so everybody knows this right now i am not going to ask any questions so go to another site if, you, if you're clicking on ask that i'm really going to put it out there now i'm not going to ask about the base or any of the stuff so i just want everybody to know that right now move on um, so, so that being said, you actually start off playing in bands yourself. What were you playing from? Like, what kind of instruments were you playing? Can you play a lot of different ones or just guitar? Oh, I started off playing guitar, but I kind of sucked. That would be the first to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Cowboy chords? Um, I, I play little keyboards, little drums, little percussion. Not really good at any of them, but you know, I always had a good ear. Yeah. And obviously that's always helped out every time there's a producer that ha plays many instruments or has enough of a, a working knowledge of songwriting like that. It always seems to be a better producer with other bands in the studio. Well, the interesting thing is I never had any music theory training, which is interesting. I'm, I've always been a field guy. You know, when I worked with Mike Barbiero, he had music theory. So that helped us along the way. Yeah. We had to get down to the nitty gritty. But I always knew what was right and what was wrong. Well, <laughs> and you know, I, it's always, funny I always felt that Sometimes if you have a background music theory, you tend to uh, sterilize uh, mm -hmm. music. And I, I never wanted to do that. I wanted, I wanted to keep it, you know, like if I work with a band, I wanted to keep it human. And that's important. You know, you get a singer. I, I'd rather hear a singer that has um, vulnerability, dynamics, and believability over somebody who's technically perfect pitch every note. Oh, it shows in a lot of the artists that you've done. And that's, that's one of the things like why I wanted to speak to you, because it's not about, you know, some of the artists you've done, are, you know, I'm not really a, a fan of, or no, don't, don't not like them, but you know what I'm saying? But some of the artists you did specifically during the late 80s, 90s, you, is a good example of how you followed less production and more of a raw sound, you know, your Guns and Roses, your, I even think I've heard it, you know, with like an Alice Cooper, like a lot of your artists, it, it didn't feel, I think at the time period, a lot of being, a lot of the um, production had that, that, that super reverby, glossy feel production. And I think a lot of your artists, once you did, didn't feel like that. It felt a lot more natural. It just felt like there's breathing room and it felt, you know. Well, I mean, a good example is Tesla. I produced their first three albums with Michael and, um, Obviously, on every album, we said no machines. And there was a reason for that is we kept it real. You know, I mean, that was before Pro Tools. So where you wouldn't put something on a grid and perfection each bar. Mm -hmm. You know, so we would have the band play live in the studio and then obviously do overdubs, do a guide vocal, but try to keep the essence of a band playing together. Because I always found as, you know, looking, going to a lot of live shows, I'm saying, well... They sound they sound and feel better live than they did in the studio, you know, on a studio recording. Yeah. And there's a reason for that because people tend to overanalyze. 
when I says, okay, you know, I'm going to take a band in the studio and say, okay, we're going to elevate your live show now, okay? So it, it's very important that they're able to capture what they do in the studio live. That's always been uh, my mantra. And, and so far, for the most part, it's worked. And, you know, obviously, it depends on the musical genre you're working on. You right. Know? I mean, you've done a lot of different genres, too. I mean, so with the rock world, the live, the live works out. I mean... And that explains why those albums are so good. I mean, now at any point when you when you're working with bands, do you actually how do you fit in with the bands? Like you know, like sometimes people sometimes they step back, sometimes a little more strong. Do you kind of chameleon kind of see how the band works? You know what I'm saying? Like the psychology of it, because I mean, I always think that like, dealing with all these different bands and egos and stuff, it's almost like you have to be like a psychologist too coming in. <laughs> to deal with different things to, to succeed. Well, I mean, that's why you do pre-production. This way you can hopefully develop a chemistry with the artist and the, or mm-hmm. the band. And you have to know when to step back, let things happen. And I'm always have plan A, B, C ready in case need to be, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, if, they, if somebody's stuck, we have a plan. You know, and that's the whole thing. You know, I don't like people thinking in the studio if, if that's weird. I'd rather, I'd rather them come in fresh it's like if you're in pre-production and you go through a song five thousand times how is it possibly going to be spontaneous when you go into track them live so you get you get a song you know a lot of times we do rearranging rewriting lyrics different keys whatever but i want to get them where they 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 practice the song but not too much because mm-hmm. i want them to feel I, i'd love to get it and take one two or three because that's usually when the best the take best. and the best feel of the song is going to be in my book, it's like Hollywood. For some reason, you get Hollywood producers thinking they have to take 5,000 takes on one scene. And the problem is they don't know how to make a decision. So that's why they do many takes where I know when the take is right. And I'll stop it right there. You know, yeah. there was there was a, 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 a funny experience when I was working at Media Sound. Aretha Franklin was working with uh, Luther Vandross. And it was a funny story. And Luther was a perfectionist. And so is obviously Aretha. Right. And um, they had a little conflict where, you know, Aretha, Aretha would sing the song. Mm-hmm. And Luther would go, hey, uh, let's try another take. And she, she would go, what's wrong with that take? I said, well, I, I think we can get it better. Let's try another take. He said, no, that take is fine. And, and, and then Rita started to get a little bitchy where she goes, I've had more gold records and this and that went off on Luther. And, and this is when Rita was doing a comeback and Luther came back and said something to the back of, that might be true, but the only gold you've seen is in the roof of your mouth lately or something oh. like that. And she stormed out. Funny story. <laughs> you have to deal with a lot of egos and that, that's definitely a massaging thing. And you have, you, you have to know when to be assertive and when to just lay back. Yeah. I, I think it's an important thing. And I don't think people always think about that. Like there is, that there is a certain skill level to be a successful producer with all these different artists and to kind of move in and out is how to work with them. And that's a huge skill, just that, that people skill and to put it across to encourage them to be their best that they can be to push them without, you know, pushing them too far also, you know? Oh, I've, I've been known to push. <laughs> oh Yeah. You got to get stories about that? <laughs> well, the, you know, it, it's at a point where if I'm going to work with an artist, 
I want to make their best record ever. I mean, that's my goal. That's mm-hmm. hard to do when you work with an established artists and they've had like 10 multi-platinum albums and you're working with them for the first time. But that's right. always my goal. And a lot of times when you get these artists that come to the studio and think, okay, uh, he's, he's a name, but you know, we're going to take over and this and that. And, I, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, I want to get what I want. <laughs> right. You know, and if that means I have to push it, I mean, there was one time I was working with Corn. And, you know, I would sit at five o'clock in the morning writing lyrics with Jonathan at my hotel room. And I said, Jonathan, this is what I want you to do. When you sing the song, I don't want a lyric sheet in there. Okay. I want you to memorize the lyrics because I want a gut reaction to the song. And there's not going to be a gut reaction if you're reading the lyric sheet while you're singing the song. And I'll tell you, 95% of all singers have lyric sheets in front of them. And I don't like that. You know, that to me is not real. So I remember... Jonathan came in and did a take on one of these songs and he put so much energy and so much passion. He almost passed out at the end of the take. And that's what I love to see. (laughs) Which is awesome. You know, I think some of the bands that do that, that come in, the ones that don't do that are the bands that say, Oh, you know what? We wrote some songs. We went out and played them for a while on tour, came back. So they know them. They know the lyrics. They know the parts. Then you can tinker with them more. Although now the challenge is everyone has a phone or they can record it. So it's hard for an artist to, to go out and, and play some new music to test it out and kind of work it out before mm-hmm. they come into the studio and learn it. Yeah. So they're just writing it on the spot, which clearly is a lot of challenges there. Um, let me, so sometimes you're a producer and an engineer, a mixer. At what point is it decided to have you come in for these different things? Like, you know what I'm saying? There's like different projects you've come in for different times. It's not like you're the producer. Sometimes you're the mixer. You know what I'm saying? There's a particular skill set that you're coming in to fix something. Like you're good at all these, but they're like, oh, you know what? We need to see skill on mixing for this. You know what I'm saying? Or like a certain sound. Well, you know, sometimes they get hired as a writer, a producer, a ranger, a mixer, a remixer. It depends on the project. I mean, when we did Injustice for All, the reason why they hired us is for the work we did with Madonna. Figure that one out. Who would ever thought? Because they liked the, set, the drum sound that we got on Madonna, so that we got them to hire us. <laughs> the drum sound you didn't get to use anyhow. Huh? <laughs> the drum sound you didn't get to use anyhow. No, no, no. <laughs> that, 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 that's been duly noted between the bass. And I the know, I know, I know. Let me. So can I ask you this? How... how um... As far as the guitars, how much tracking? James was known to do like a lot of a lot of. He's like the rhythm king. How many tracks does he do for rhythm? Like three or four? Like layering? No, oh, at least yeah. There's layering and plus. I mean, Lars would take probably about six months to put his drum tracks together. Yeah. You know, they would build a you know, with, with that type of music. It's very clinical, so mm-hmm. it's not like you could play live drums and then just overdub over that. I mean, everything had to be precise, especially with the double bass drums this and that. And, you know, within metal, you know, it's got to be precise. Then you had James and Kirk and, you know, they would add a lot of guitars. And, uh, you know, Jason, I thought, did a great bass part in Injustice. It was a great marriage between Hetfield's rhythms and and, and um, his bass part, which uh, flabbergasted me. They didn't want to hear it. You know? I know. And it's been well documented that you the, <laughs> you got in got screwed in that end and you know well i mean i come from an r&b background so you know damn well i like bass <laughs> well all your music no but well no all your music shows it in fact every other producer has had bass in their thing so it's not like it's literally it's still a, it's still a good album i still love the album to this day in fact my oh it, it's a classic <laughs> album it still sells today and people love it it is different i mean 
my only regret was I didn't have enough time to spend my own time mixing it the way I heard it just right. to have, you know, I hear because there's like stuff. Doing 10 projects at once. So that's the only unfortunate thing. But at the end of the day, with Lil said, you know, we're there to please the band. If they want something at the end of the day, it's their record. They have to get it. You know, yep. the, that's what you think. Well, the one thing is, is yeah, I was I always talk about the bass stuff. But as far as the guitaring, like a lot of uh, stuff that Metallica had done is is documented in all their video series. They do like you know the making of this album, this one. There really wasn't one for years. So I was curious about Kirk's. The last question, as far as that goes, with Kirk's solos, were they were talking spontaneous? Like, and this could lead to other guitar players' genres. How spontaneous are some of the guitar solos, and what do you? Well, you have to understand. I didn't record that. We just mixed that. So you just mixed it. So the, you the, those parts were already done. You know? oh, I thought they're flying in at some point to, to do patch up stuff and no, no. Yeah. Basically, when we oh, mixed okay. the album, Lars and Hetfield would fly in when they were on the Monsters of Rock tour and come oh. in, give us their feedback on the mixes. So we were working up in Bearsville in New York, and they would fly in once or twice a week. We'd go through all the songs, and that's how it worked. So those were the only guys that were in the studio when we were mixing. Well, all right. Well, that answers that question. <laughs> but so, so here's the But so with, with guitars, and so you are, do you do work? Like, say, when you work with uh, you know, Guns N' Roses, and you work with more than one set of guitars or Tesla, is there a certain dynamic you're working with with the two guitars for a certain sound, for a balance? You know what I mean? The energy between the two guitars? Well, it, it, it's kind of, been, it depends what kind of music I'm doing. If I'm doing heavy music, I, I've always liked the Deftones heavy tone. And what I would wind up doing is, you know, I have, um, uh an 86 or 87 les paul custom that i put seymour duncan's in and my favorite uh, head to record is a, a bogner ubishaw and i either use a marshall cabinet or a mesa cabinet it gives me a really heavy tone and if i want to mm-hmm. add distortion i would basically uh double track guitar one a heavy clean tone and then another distortion tone to marry with that so this way i can filter out how much distortion I want, how much I don't want, or I can go left and right and pan them, you know, okay. or, you know, sometimes I would layer four rhythm guitars together, depending on how heavy I want. At the end of the day, you still don't want to lose the drums in the process, but, you know. No, you don't, but I mean, like, say, you know, uh, like, so once again, so like Guns N' Roses, or, or like, you know, uh, Cinderella, you did the full, produ- you you produced that album. No, uh, we, we mixed that too, but we did some oh, additional production. We did some additional production uh, when we were mixing. But, it always yeah. feels, yeah. Sorry, it always feels like there's a lot, a lot more of a presence and a, clean, a cleanness of more than one guitar. They're not muddy, and that's something I love about your work. Is it feels like there's a there's a dynamic between like you know the Tesla, both the guys, or you know what I'm saying. You well, can we're hear very all we're very into transparency. Like every instrument has to have their own EQ airspace. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really important. You know, Tom Kiefer to me is a genius guitar player. I mean, the guy is is amazing. You know, I work with a lot of guitar players, as you know. I mean, just Tom can play everything. He's underrated on that level. I mean, he's known, but he's not rated as far as being like the guitar player up with other guitar Well, I mean, yeah, they used to call him the, the hair band, but I mean, he, you know, they were into like blues heavy rock, you mm-hmm. know? It wasn't like, you know, they were into glam rock. No, I mean, the second album, The Long Cold Winter, was their big breakthrough. It just might not have sold the same and the market may have changed. No, that actually, album that album is still selling today. Still selling today. But I'm saying, as far as that was the beginning of the, the, the decline of, I know, I, read, I was reading they wanted, they thought it was going to be even bigger, you know, because of, it was their next album, you know, be like twice the size, but, you know, it's a fantastic album. It's one of my favorite albums by them, you know. That's one of my uh, favorite ballads too. Don't know what you got, so it's gone. I thought it was a great ballad. Yeah. 
I just heard that the other day. It is a good song. So yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like back in the, you know, especially around then, a lot of the guitars were not, they were fighting for a sound. Everything was very, you know, muddy or, or, the, or the guitars were very thin. Yeah, you said, you know, you've, you've really- Well, been again, you have to understand guitars. our recording philosophy. We love recording on old, old school Neve consoles, which give a nice chunky sound. And we use great instruments, great amps and great EQ. And a lot of times, most people will record bands on an SSL, which gives you that thin- thinner sound which is uh, I call it the digital sound yeah and I always thought in a perfect world is we record it on Neve and mix on SSL and you get the best of both worlds but again the most important thing I've always felt in the studio is to make sure everything's transparent everything can be heard without fighting over each other mm-hmm. who is your favorite producer or mixer besides yourself or your partner that you've worked with for all those years like Oh, I love what George Martin did with the Beatles. I mean, he added an orchestration. Yeah, he's. I he's, love Quincy yeah. Jones for what he did. I mean, uh, I remember meeting Quincy years ago, and um, when he records Sinatra, which I thought was fascinating, you know, Frank would only sing with a complete orchestra behind him. He'll give you one take, mm-hmm. so your your orchestra better be in tune. So Quincy goes, okay, guys, we're going to go to bar 61. One, you have a 60-piece orchestra, Ugh. like the needles on the record. I can't get four rock and roll guys to play in the same friggin' key. And this <laughs> guy's got 60 musicians in unison that's just going off. There's, okay. there, there's sure. a lot of good ones. You know, I mean, I remember when Def Leppard was doing Hysteria, I would be on the phone with Joe Elliott mostly every day, and... um Mud is the anal of anal producers. And um, it took like three years to record that album. I mean, I Joe, would, Joe would call me up, hey, Steve, I got a whole line today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Mutt would take a guitar chord and record each string separately. And wow. I, I said, I probably did about 20 albums to that one in that time period. But at the end of the day, when I listened to that album, that album was perfect and exactly mm-hmm. what was needed to do that band. Knowing the musicians, knowing Joe and everything like that, Mutt aced it. Mutt aced a lot. I mean, I can never be that anal, okay? But it works for Mutt. And I give Mutt, him... Mutt's a sound, sound though, too. You know what I mean? Uh, Mutt has a sound like... Mutt has his own sound. Like, when you can... You know, like, Shania Twain and, and Brian Adams also, they all, all three of them were starting to have that, that Def Leppardy, Rocky sound. It's, yeah. He almost had, like, his own sound. Whereas you don't have, I don't really think you have a sound. You you tend to polish up the band. I don't, uh, I don't believe is, in is, being the subject producer. I think that's the best way I can describe most producers. They have a key sound. I don't like to be that way because I like each artist to have their own identity. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. And I always love experimenting, you know, with sounds and this and things like that. So I, I don't want to use this, this, you know, when my partner, Mike Barbiero at the time, you know, since we worked on so many different genres of music, you know, it was great. So you didn't kind of follow what you did on the last band, you know, yeah. it always be something new and different. And that was always important to me. When you change between, because you went from, what was it, kind of like a disco dance, then you went to rock, and then when rock went down, you switched to like, what would, how would you switch to, like more like a, a uh, an alternative, and then I know you do EDM too. I mean, you hit a lot of different. Genres, well, I mean, I really started up as a D- after being a rock band in the early 70s and sucked. I was a club DJ for a while and got an opportunity to work on some dance music. 
remix dance music. And that was a great stepping stone to where I wanted to be. And again, growing up as a kid, I was a rocker, but I always loved R&B, you know, like James Brown, uh, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Frank. I mean, you name it. But uh, at the same time, I loved Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Bowie, and whatever. And um, I started doing a lot of dance music. And around 82 or something like that, I got into doing some R&B. And then I got into what they call New Wave, you know, like Talk Talk, Psychedelic Furs, uh, David Bowie, uh, Missing Persons. I went into that, Duran Duran, that whole genre of music. And I love that, you know, I, you know, and then I got into more pop music uh, in the mid 80s from Whitney Houston, Madonna and that whole genre. And then everything was going number one. I told my manager, said, dude, I'm bored. I need some good rock and roll. So uh, my manager hooked me up with Tom Zutat from Geffen Records. And the first two bands he turned me on to were Tesla and Guns N' Roses. <laughs> everything changed from there. And I said, great. And then towards the end of the 80s, I wasn't digging the music that was I was never a fan of Poison or Warrant, even Kiss. I mean, I, I respect Kiss, but it was not my type of music. Mm -hmm. I was more of a David Bowie guy. You know, I, I just love an artist like David can take a concept and change up every single album. I love that. He was a chameleon. He was. But at the end of the 80s, I was getting calls from bands like that and I was ready to leave the music industry. And then my friend Steve Rubofsky calls me up. He says, Steve, I got this band for you. Let me know if you're interested in working on it with them. And the band was Soundgarden. Oh. So I worked on their first album for AM Records. And that gave me new faith in music. So that was uh, Louder Than Love with right. a Big Dumb, big dumb yeah. Sex on it. What? That's the one with that's Big Dumb Sex is on that one, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love them. And, and a funny story about Chris. It's a great album. Yeah. Um, I was working at Ozzy at that point on No More Tears album before we quit. Mm -hmm. And um, Chris was a big Ozzy fan. He says, hey, I wrote these songs. Can you give them to Ozzy and see if he'll do them? I said, sure. Yeah. So I played for Ozzy. He goes, yeah, I fucking did songs like that years ago. I don't want to. <laughs> I, <thought laughs> back I thought the songs are great, but you know that's what Ozzy said was that. And um, what was really interesting is making that transition from 80s rock to 90s grunge alternative to whatever you know they look at a guy like steve thompson say what the fuck does he know about the new music you know mm -hmm. i said fuck you i'm gonna pick out an alternative band and i'm gonna make them number one and happen to be the butthole surface which i co-wrote the song pepper with that's another good song <clears throat> and um the funny thing is it went alternative song of the year i said don't ever typecast me because you know when I work on music, I'm always about today, not yesterday or tomorrow. So I do my homework and see, you know, what the next wave could be, what the next step is. And that's how I approach music today. Well, it's fantastic that you've done so many different genres and you do, you've done them all. Clearly, you've succeeded in all the ones you've done, which is great. Do you have a, a favorite type of, of, of music you like doing now that you keep going back to? You kind of like, like a pop or a rock version? Is there something, or EDM now? Is there something you enjoy doing the most? Well, I did this band, uh, um, Blitz Union. I, I wrote uh, the songs. You could check it out on my uh, webpage, where I kind of married EDM with heavy rock. If you took like uh, Rammstein, because they're from Prague, Rammstein, and just gave it an edge. There's a song I wrote called Revolution, which is so apropos for today. 
Mm-hmm. I, I love mixing genres together. You know, um, I love bands like the Struts. I would love, if I worked with the Struts, they'd probably make the biggest album ever. That's how I feel. Because I think they have so much talent. I just don't. I think wish you would. I feel like they're lim- I feel like they're in limbo right now musically. Like- well, I, I just think they're misguided. Tell you the truth, if I work with them, I guarantee it would be the biggest thing in the world. I mean, I love that band. Obviously, he's a reincarnation of Freddie Mercury. I get that. But when he starts uh, doing duets with uh, what's her name, um, I said, "Why?" <laughs> I forgot yeah. her name. You know, Pop was a Keisha. No, I've been yeah. Keisha a couple albums ago. But I think they have uh, uh, so much untapped talent. It's just I think they just need the right direction. And then Flom's uh, um, uh, signs of what's the Zeppelin clone band? Um, oh God, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a, a mind fart here. What's the band that sounds like Zeppelin? Oh, Greta Van Fleet. Huh? Greta Van Fleet. Yeah, Greta Van Zepp. And I think they have so much talent, but well, you know, again, I saw Zeppelin live in the seventies, probably about 400 times and 399 times they sucked live. Mm-hmm. So I knew how integral Jimmy Page was to that band in the studio, because um, I had a meeting with Jimmy and David Coverdale when they did that album. Oh, the Coverdale page. Right. Uh, they were interested in me producing it. So I had a meeting with Jimmy and David and David took over the whole conversation, how he likes to do his vocals and this. And Jimmy would just be silent. And this is how I want to work. I want to work with this guy to do my vocals and this and that. And so I was, wasn't getting a great feeling about this. So I said, Jimmy, what was the last time somebody produced you? He goes, never. I said, guess what? I'm not going to be the first. <laughs> 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 I mean, <clears throat> I idolize Jimmy. I mean, um, I don't care how sloppy he was live, but what they did in the studio and what they did with that band to me, I still think to this day, Zeppelin is one of the best rock and roll bands ever. I mean, to go, even going to California, that that mellow yeah. song blows me away. Uh, you know, obviously everybody likes Cashmere. I just, that band had it all. They really did. No, I've done some deep dives on my show on, on Zeppelin, so I love them. It's, you know, every album is great. Even, even their off albums at the end, their off stuff is still stronger than most artists do nowadays you know it's yeah it holds up it's a different scene today you know well sadly it is yes unfortunately you know um everybody goes back when we're gonna make great music there is great music out there you just gotta search for it you know and it's very sad that companies don't get behind great new artists and cultivate them the way they should you know now it's all about social media so if you have a person shitting on a toilet and has 50 million views, you'll find somebody trying to sign them mm-hmm. as a great artist who might have a thousand views and got so much potential. They won't because they don't want to do their homework. I've heard that. I heard that like some, some artists, known artists that were larger in the day. Now for some media companies to take them, they have to have X amount of followers or X amount of this numbers oh, yeah, yeah. before they'll, they'll take them on. I'm like, and these are, these are established artists that have done yeah. some beautiful work. You know, well, that's that's the thing is they insane. don't these these companies don't want to do their own work. You know, they want to have other people do the work for them. You know, it's it, it's all run by board members. I mean, David Geffen, God bless him. Uh, what I loved about David, I remember when we did Appetite, and um, 
Michael Rosenbart, the president of the company, had a platinum party at his house. I went there and I had a meeting with David before that, and which I thought was amazing. You know, David goes, this is, you know, congratulations on Guns N' Roses. He says, it's not my thing. I mean, I'm into like Laura Nero and, and this whole other thing. Yeah. But you know what? I really trust my guys to find the right artists. You know, they had a great A&R staff. They had Tom Zutad, John Claude, oh, yeah. Gary Gersh, the whole thing. And you know what? It's interesting. He took me around the office and he goes, see that guy over there? He hasn't done anything in two years, but I have a feeling he's going to do something really special one day. And he was pointing to Gary Gersh. Uh, soon after that, he signed Nirvana. Yeah. Okay. You know, so he, what I loved about the atmosphere of that company is he lets you do your thing and let you be who you are. And I think that's important, you know, you should never be intimidated. You know? And that's the problem I see with, with, with music companies say they don't really have the talent, you know, yeah. the, the, the talent to have the ear. And right now, the ear is watching YouTube and find out who's got the most views. Right. Well, it's interesting. You've actually talked about David Geffen. I remember growing up because there was, you know, there was no internet back in the day for us. And you'd read the magazines and you hear how, you know, David Geffen broke off at his own company so he could foster other bands like this, you know, and he trusts his rouster and he, he could build an artist and stuff. Later in the days, as I've talked to some of these, these other artists from those days, they don't have the same taste of David was kind of rough on them at the end, like holding their albums, not releasing them. You know, I've heard some pretty rough stories on the other side. And I'm kind of surprised because that's not what I'd heard. You know, you hear two sides of it. Well, kind of uh, again, you have to realize that, you know, Clive Davis is one of my mentors. OK. And Clive, you know, back in the day. You know, I worked on Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody. I worked with his top artist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Clive's thing was he's a control freak. Okay. So if he's working with Whitney Aretha, he picks out the songwriter, picks out the songs, and basically says, okay, sing them. Okay. Right. Yeah. He, he would do that. He was that on top, but he was, he was a marketing genius. And if you went Clive's way, you would go far. And there was right. a certain artist that had success. And then that artist on the next album wanted to do it their way. And Clive said, don't do it. And Clive just let them do it. And they fell flat on their face. Okay. Now I have a lot of respect for Clive for two reasons. He knows what a great song is. Might not be a genre, but there was no better song guy than Clive. Mm -hmm. You know, and I really learned a lot from Clive. I have to say, I did learn a lot. Yeah, well, the, I think Clive's a little different than Geffen. I mean, because Clive actually was a full package. Geffen was yeah, well, like, yeah, yeah. Clive's Clive's more of a music guy than David was. Right, and and I have a super respect for Clive because he does. He 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 visioned an entire package in his head, and he oh, yeah. knew soup to nuts, and yeah. that's a whole other level of not just having a company. That's that's just that's a gift, you know. That's a total gift. Nobody's like that anymore. You know, David was different, but David, thank God, he had the right people to uh get the right artist for Gaffin. It was up to David. He would still be signing Cher and Lauren Nero and all these, I mean, things he liked, but he knew better. He said, yeah. I can't run a successful company. I you know, and after Guns N' Roses, that that just blew up that whole company, you know? Yeah. And he let his people do his thing. And then Nirvana, I mean, how can mm-hmm. you go wrong? No, he knocked it out of the park. It's just, yeah, it was funny because I mean I'd heard some and maybe it's more on the business end why he did it and more producers and, and, and under the under stuff. I was just kind of surprised. I thought he was way, way more liberal with the artists having more freedom. Um, actually, that's what I want to talk about, David. So 
did you have you ever talked with other producers? I feel like like have you and um like like Bob Rock ever spoken? I mean, clearly you guys worked on different Metallica albums, but have you guys ever just hung out or like at a show or something overlap? Well, we kinda, just we hung out. And, and not Bob. even about Metallica, not even about Metallica, just kind of an overlap of a coincidence. Well, when Metallica got elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they were gracious enough to fly us out to go to the, the inauguration. I was working in Canada, so I flew in there and I actually met Bob Rock for the first time. Mm-hmm. At the show, we just said hi and everything like that. I never really talked shop with him. I used to talk shop a lot with Phil Ramone. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, Phil's a great guy. Um, Quincy. Uh, but, you know, I, I've always had an open session. You know, if somebody wants to come in, I have nothing to hide and come in, learn whatever. Um, I'm trying to think as any top producers. Um I don't think I've even met Mutt Lang. I felt <laughs> like I knew him because of my conversations with Joe Elliott every day. <laughs> every day? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He would, we, we, would, we would converse every day. I mean, it, it was a frustrating record to make, but at the end of the day, it was brilliant, you know, it whatever was. it took. Well, that is the Def Leppard sound. Uh, you know, I don't listen to you know, Shania Twain, and uh, I do like some Brian Adams at different periods of his career, but that sound is the Def Leppard sound, and it's a well, great it's sound. Well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Phil Collins produced, I think, last Tesla album, and mm-hmm. I had a lot of that uh, Def Leppard production style to it. It did. I heard that too when I listened to it. It was really, really it was interesting. A it lot of people didn't like it. Said, so "What happened to Tesla?" And I said, "Hey, you know, got experiment. You know, whatever works." I I love the fact that band can do. I'll support any band, good or bad albums, if they want to try to do something different. You know, not about ego. If they say, "You know what? I'm an artist, and I've done, you know, 15 different of the same albums, and they've all well, been platinum. That's great." But well, now I'll like try a different sound. It's like Appetite, you know? If Slash and the guys had their way, there'd be Appetite too. But Axel said, no, I want to grow. You know, I remember we had November Rain as a demo that was going to be on Appetite. But at that point, the song wasn't quite there yet. It was just like a raw demo state. It needed a little time to mature. And that is a brilliant song. Mm-hmm. And, and Axel just took the reins and said, dude, we're doing it this way. You know, we're going to bring in the lush production. He loved Elton John. He loved orchestration. And Slash would just rather play rock and roll guitar, you know? Yeah. But, you know, that's the, the genius of Axel. You know, but and the thing, like, even when he did Chinese Democracy, there's, a, there's some good music on there. I, you know, I'm not worried about the platinum status of it. I found some good, good songwriting on it. I mean, I would have maybe some different players on it and some different production. But overall, I give him props for working on it. So you actually, you did um, Slash's Snake Pit, too. And that yeah. was after that. Mm-hmm. Was that more like going back and doing like an appetite type of vibe? Was it, was it, you know, jumping back uh, well, in the studio it was, with him? It was more raw than, you know, what Guns N' Roses were doing. You know, again, we just brought in to mix that album. But it was more of a raw sensibility. I mean, I, I, I love um, Slash teaming up with Miles. I thought that was a good teaming up. Yeah. You know, I mean, because Slash was always trying to find that right singer with him. And I, I think when he got to get with Miles, I thought it was a perfect mix. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I don't think I, I didn't really appreciate Miles as much until later on. Yeah. Until I, I actually was hearing Miles do his his solo stuff. Because hearing many other stuff, I'm like, yeah, he's a good singer, but it's just not jumping out at me. I don't know what it is. And then I've recently listened to some of his solo stuff, and it blew me away. And now I've gone back and listened to the other stuff, and now it just it feels better. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Well, it's kind of weird when I hear Miles sing any Guns N' Roses song. I have a problem with that, but, you know, <laughs> I guess I'm but I think it's hard. Yeah, I think it's hard for anybody to go Guns N' Roses song. There's something about when you're such an artist, you put such a stamp on a certain song. 
you know, like an Elton John or, 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 or David Bowie or just certain songs that you can do. I mean, Kurt Cobain got away with doing a man that sold the world. You know what I mean? Because he put his own twist on it. I, I got to be honest David with Bowie. you. I'm the I biggest know. David Bowie freak you'll ever meet in your life. I mean, David's the reason why I got in the music industry. In 1974, I saw him at Radio City Musical play the Ziggy Stardust show, and that changed my life forever. And I, I, I envy went, you for that show. I envy huh? you for seeing that show. I envy you for seeing that show. There's not a lot of shows I, I really wish I saw. I wish I saw that one. Well, the you know what's interesting about that show? Clockwork Orange came out, and that was an intense movie. And what I found quite interesting is they, they had a chamber organ player mm-hmm. play before David would play live, and he would play the, the soundtrack to Clockwork Orange. I mean, it's really? Like, that friggin' eerie was so cool. And um, I don't think I blinked once in that whole show. And, and uh, it blew me away. So I wound up seeing him live and to get the opportunity to actually work with David later in life was a dream come true. You know, I mean, I can't say enough about David and that's, you know, I work with Prince too. You know, David was probably the biggest, hardest passing I've ever had to endure in the music industry. I I just thought he would live forever. You know, Prince, I was another shocker to me. I I just couldn't believe he died. Yeah, I mean, Prince was a guy who ate healthy, didn't do drugs, and then I find out he's doing this and that. I don't see the problem. I think with a lot of artists, they hurt themselves on stage or whatever, and they're grueling. Yep. And then they have a doctor who gives them feel good pills, and they get addicted. It's like Michael Jackson, yeah. Elvis Presley, uh, Johnny Cash. You can go down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to take supplements to keep up with their grueling schedule, and that's sad. But you know, it is what it is. We've lost a lot of good people this in the past couple of years, especially. So, yeah, you worked on it with David Bowie. You did uh, Dancing in the Streets, right? I worked on that. Yeah, it was interesting. I was just about ready to go on vacation. I got a call because I work with the Stones and I work at Mick on some solo projects and I work with David. And they said, well, we have this track, Dancing in the Streets. We recorded it one night in London when they were doing live. Aid. Would you be interested in mixing it? And I said, shit. I mean, of course I would. So I got the tracks and I felt the guitars were kind of like, could have been better so i brought earl slick in to redo all the guitars nice. and i brought a percussion player in as well and i brought carlos alomar in to be david's ear because david wasn't there you know mm-hmm. carlos was uh david's music director forever and great guitar player another genius i love carlos alomar what a great guy and we wound up doing that yeah it's funny when i look on youtube at times and i, I see the ones who who did the track with no music on there and you hear Mick Jagger's thieves something in her head. Hysterical. <laughs> I thought it was a great version. It was kind of interesting. I was, I think I was working with Expose at the time and Martha Reeves had a TV show. And we happened to go to the show because Expose was performing. And, you know, Martha Reeves is the one who originally sang Dancing mm-hmm. in the Streets. Yep, right. And I got interviewed, um, you know, when they go into the audience. And I, this is when I, the version just came out. I said, Martha, did you hear the David Bowie, Mick Jagger version, Dancing in the Streets? I worked on that. And she goes, yeah, I liked it a lot. You know, so it was kind of cool. That is cool. That was, what was that? That was for the, uh, was it, was it for Live Aid or something? They, they, they both wanted to do a song together, right? Was it Live Aid they did the song for? Or what, yeah, it was, was a big Live event. Aid, yeah. And they that was trying to figure out a, to Live Aid. That was a pretty big show, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I'm it was kind of interesting because I worked with Tony Thompson, 
mm-hmm. the drummer. Yep. You know Tony? And uh, Tony was asked to play with Led Zeppelin, and then Phil Collins and him would play with Zeppelin. And Tony was the hardest hitting drummer I've ever worked with in my life. I love Tony. Loved his energy. And he felt he was a Zeppelin aficionado before that show. So he knew everything about it. But he says, when I play with them, I was clueless. <laughs> <laughs> so you spend that much time, you know, doing that. And then when you get to play with them, it's just totally different. I thought it was kind of interesting. A whole new, a whole new uh, angle. Yeah, Tony's fantastic, too. So for him to say that, I've always thought he's a great drummer. Um, we literally, uh, my first big production was probably in 1984, where we had this artist, Bluey Psalm from England, and um, he sang a little like Bowie. So I said, why don't we put Bowie's band together? So he's called Salomar, Bernard Edwards, Tony Thompson, Robin Clark on background vocals, the Sims Brothers, David Waldman and Dave LeBolt on keyboards. So we put this whole band together. And it was really interesting. We recorded it at Media Sound in New York. Tony would hit his drum so hard, we literally had to nail his kick drum to the floor because he'd keep moving <laughs> and the mice would move all over the place. Had to nail it to the floor. True story. Oh, Toledo. Huh? That's insane. I've never heard that before. Like, yeah. For any other musician or, or this at all. That's. Well, I mean, he developed a sound. I mean, when you had that uh, power station band with uh, Robert mm-hmm. Palmer, yep. you know, you heard those big drums. I always loved that drum sound. It's a cool drum sound. It was. That, that, the first, I really loved the first album a lot, too, that they did. It was a good sound, the whole album. Um, two, so, so two other bands that you did. I know you, so you did a remix of, um, of Aha. Sun Always Shines on TV. Which is a great song. How did they end up pulling you in for that one? Why did you have to do like remix with for like a single? Did they need you to make it more poppy or? Well, it was kind of interesting. Uh, they wanted it for the dance clubs. Mm-hmm. And I love the song. I love for its etherealness and everything like that. And yeah, it became, I, I just love the vibe of the song. I love the keyboards. Like when I work at Ultravox, dancing with tears in my eyes. Yeah. I just love the lushness of the keyboards. I really liked the way that out, that that record came out. I was very happy with that. You know, I, it, 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 oh, I'm sorry. I uh, um, well, I know there's out there the uh, like the demos of that album, how the songs have really changed, which is really great to hear. Is out there. Um, I actually think it's part of their package with, with the album now, like a remastered version, or whatever. And it's great to hear how the songs have changed. So it's interesting to see like how you did like a remix of a, a finished product of theirs. You know, made it even more more dance, more fun. You know, it's such a good song. Uh, one other pop band actually. The question on so you work with Duran Duran for View to a Kill, right? Which never came yeah. out, which I'm flabbergasted. Um, we were in Paris uh, working with them on a couple of songs, and they had Vito Kill. I said, hey, you know, give me a shot on this, right? And I love the song. It's one of my favorite James Bond songs, you know? Mm-hmm. I, it just had everything. And um, we had a fun time in Paris, you know? Simon, we owned the town, you know, because at that time they were at the height of their career. Oh, yeah. We had 50,000 kids trying to get into the studio every day. We kind of ran Paris, had a great time, and uh, did do a view to kill him, but couldn't understand why it was never released. And now, obviously, uh, through the channels, uh, somebody sent me a CD with it on it, <laughs> my version. I said, it's oh. about time. I thought it was a great version. What do you mean it wasn't released as a single? Yeah. Not my version, was... no. Oh, um, not your version. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize it wasn't your version. I just knew you were affiliated with it. I thought it was your version. That's weird. And you never found out why? 
Uh, it was funny. I think John Taylor did an interview. He couldn't understand why either, because people were bringing it up. We had something that never came up in conversation. Again, we were working on so many things at the same time. It just kind of blew us by. But, you know, I remember listening to us saying, damn, why didn't this come out? So I never really figured out why. But now it's out. <laughs> Good. Good. That's, that's really interesting. And it kind of holds it... up, to tell you the truth. So wait, it's out now. Where's that? Like on YouTube or something? Do you have it out? Or where's it out now, the version of it? Huh? Where's it, where is it out now? Do they hear it? So you know the different versions for clarity. I got like a CD ones. from Europe somehow. Uh I'm sure you can go on YouTube and probably YouTube. Steve okay. Thompson remix of Vito Kill. I'm sure it'll come up on that. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't know if it was like an official thing or if it's just like yeah, out there, out there. I, I'll hunt it down. I'm curious to hear it. Cause I loved it. I, I'm a big Duran Duran fan to the year. I'm a I've... big James Bond fan. So it's a truth. <laughs> well, we'll see who the new James Bond's going to be after this uh, next round. Who do you think is going to be the new, who do you think is going to be the new uh, James Brown? Uh, James, Brown. James Bond. At this point, you know what I mean? The, the new James Bond, you know, who, who do you think it's going to be? Um, I think they're going, I heard stories, maybe an African-American. Could that be possible? Iris, Iris Elvis, I think his name is. I'm not sure the name. I think I that's what it is. Pick, who's the guy who played the Kirk? Is that Chris Pratt? Uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, no, Chris. Uh, Pine. Here's a Chris. Yeah, Pine. Chris Pine? Yeah. I like him. I mean, when that... When uh, what's his name did the new uh, Star Trek movie? I loved him. I thought he was mm-hmm. great. That was yeah. great casting. One of the few new movies I thought was amazing casting done. From yeah, Spock, I agree. Spock on down, you know, it was it was brilliant. I'm not a huge Star Trek fan either, but when I saw it, I was like, it was. I really enjoyed it. And I felt the, the cast really worked out well. That's what made it more enjoyable for me. Not being a big Star Trek fan. Well, I'm into science fiction. You know, I mean. Yeah. Um, I always loved science fiction. Like I worked on Star Wars. I worked on Return of the Jedi. I had a choice. Yeah. I had a choice to work on a song with Return of the Jedi or Flashdance. Now I knew that Flashdance <laughs> was going to be an international smash, but I wanted my name on Return of the Jedi. And I said, and it was a song called Lafty Neck, an Ewok thing. Probably the worst piece of garbage song I ever heard in my life. But I got my yeah. name on the record, so I was cool with that. That was that was for you, not for them. <laughs> huh? I said that one was for you, not for them. Oh, exactly. Hold on it. a second. Let me uh, move yeah. this out. I have it framed. Hold on a second. Mm-hmm. Let's see if you can see this. Can you see that? Yep. Holy Toledo. Huh? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is quite a collection you have there huh holy uh, this is one room i got about 10 rooms like that but i always found that platinum records are good wallpaper <laughs> <clears throat> this is my view from my man cave nice that's why i moved that's... out of new york i like to be private yeah i don't blame you new york is too too too, too tight for me too many people uh it's just Went down the shitter, unfortunately. I don't understand. Well, it'd be a way of ruining shit. Mm-hmm. Wait till you see what happens after this. Who knows what it's going to look like after the COVID? After things settled down next year or two, who knows what it's going to look like? You well, first I mean? of all, um, we 
we spend thousands of dollars a year on, on nutritionists and nutrition. I will not get the shot. My brother's a doctor, keeps telling me to get the shot. And I said, no, I'm not. Because I, I don't trust it. It's not been approved. And I want to see what happens in two years for all the people who took the shot, where they're at. I'll take my chances on my, on my immune system. And uh, it's scary. It's really scary out there because you hear things about population control, you know, one world government. I mean, everything that's going on is really scary out there today. I don't get it. No, I, I hear it. And I think a lot of a lot of what's going on plays into some of those conspiracy theories, you know, whether they, whether they lay truth, some of the stuff is and isn't. I mean, because now you find out the government says there's no UFOs. Now, all of a sudden, we're getting dossiers of UFOs out the butt. You know what I'm saying? So you are finding out things that they say aren't happening, are happening. So it really plays into what else is happening. Well, my feeling on UFOs, if, if anybody is stupid enough to think that we're the only existing living planet and a, an, an infinite amount of planets in the universe and past that, you're out of your mind. Uh, yeah, I've always I mean, thought that. I'm a firm believer that we got a lot of technology from aliens. If you look at the the technological advances from 1947 up was like astronomical i mean you had um fiber optics you had uh, uh just everything night vision this and that mm-hmm. i I'm, I'm a firm believer that and this is again me and i'm not a conspiracy theorist i'm a realist that i guarantee you there are alien bases maybe on the water that oh, i think it's underwater yeah. underwater is like I, i've always believed underwater is like space the yeah. deeper you go, it is outer space. I don't see why it's no different. Well, I'll give you a couple of stories. First of all, I have a feeling that we have a deal with aliens that they give us certain technology and either they're using us for DNA or this and that. So they, they we're giving them something, they're giving us something. It was kind of interesting. I heard uh, in the 50s, President Eisenhower actually met with aliens. Which that. is weird. And then in the 60s, Richard Nixon, Jackie Gleason was so into aliens. Mm-hmm. Richard Nixon picked him up one day and took him underground to some security place and showed him live aliens with spaceships and totally freaked Jackie out. And these are things that got leaked. Now, I am, yeah. there, you know. Well, I had heard that story. The Jack, I'd heard that story myself. You know, I'm a firm believer that we have a deal with them. Don't fuck with us. We'll give you what you need. You give us what we need. And I guarantee you, there is so much technology that is held back that we have. It would be frightening. I wouldn't be surprised if we had travel that we could hit Pluto in about a day. I wouldn't be surprised at this point as what they're holding back. Really? Well, yeah. I, I do believe they could be here. I don't know if they'd be making deals. I feel if they're smart enough to be here, that they wouldn't need to make deals. They would do what they would want to do. That we're just what. I feel like they would just do what they want to do. They wouldn't need to make deals with us because well, we're not you, smart. we don't know. We don't know. You know, they, they, they could be us, you know, a, a million years from now. You know what I mean? I mean, they could have planted the seed here and maybe with their um, primordial uh, uh, existence. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's a good theory. That's a good one. I like that. That's a good story. That'd be a good, that'd be a good movie too. <laughs> well, no, I wrote a movie called souls that is, the ultimate movie it's basically shows the beginning of time to the end of times and when you see this movie it's probably gonna take a lot of money to make it's gonna be the most incredible movie you've ever seen in your life i can guarantee you that and i wrote it with a friend of mine uh, ken kushner 
I was funny. We started working on, I think, 97. And since I had a, a close relationship with David Geffen, I sent it to Spielberg because at that time I thought he'd be perfect yeah. to do the movie. Now I feel, who's the guy who did the Star Trek movie? Uh, what's his name? I don't know. Oh, I forgot. Great, great, great director, producer. Well, anyway, so, you know, movies is all about timing. So the timing wasn't right. And it's a good thing that they didn't want to do it at the time. I still got the letter from Spielberg. Because I tweaked the movie from 97 to, the, I mean, it's over mm -hmm. 20 years old. But it's so, I, originally I wrote Johnny Depp in the script. Obviously, I wouldn't use him now. But... Um, it's going to be in this is going to be a great movie. I can't wait to put it together. Are you still in talks like serious talks with somebody right now? Or are you just kind of waiting to. Uh, you know, I'm writing my book now with my uh, co-writer. And in fact, I got to do it at 830 in the morning. I'm, I spend a two hour Zoom call uh, every week putting the book together. It's actually going to be called Appetite for Production. That's the name <laughs> of the book. How apropos. <laughs> well, it was kind of, it was kind of funny because I went on Facebook and. I had a couple ideas um, what I wanted to write, the, write uh, as a title. I said, so I had people say, hey, what title should I write in a book? And this guy, Tom Hazard, who's in the music business, says, that's easy, Appetite for Production. And I said, sounds good to me. So that's the name of the book. You know, it's, it's funny enough that it's not cheesy. You know what I mean? It's like a fine line of overdoing a name, but it's yeah. actually – it's funny enough where it fits. It's like, yeah, it's kind of funny. Like it's you know apropos. I mean? It's apropos. Yeah, it is. Very, yeah, it is. That, is. that is awesome. So that's actually something you're working on. It's, it's going to wrap up on what you're doing here. So you're working on the book. Is there a release date for that you're aiming for next year or so? Or to kind of piecemeal? Uh, that's a good question because I'm, with my book, I mean, it encompasses so much. Growing up in New York, living through the Caligula days in the seventies in clubs <laughs> to the rock and roll. Uh, I called the entourage days in LA during the eighties. Yeah. This is definitely going to be a, a, a fit for a movie type book. Yeah. And people says, I, I don't believe it happened, but, but it did. I mean, when I first saw entourage that was me in the eighties. I mean, I was hanging out with Axel every day. We had our entourage and uh, it was great. You know, go to the playboy mansion, go here and there, you know, <laughs> so I lived through all that. And uh, I make sure that I keep the skeletons in the closet on certain artists. You know, I, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I think there's enough good stories mm -hmm. without getting into the negativity of certain artists at work. I absolutely believe with you. agree with you on that one. I don't think there's so much out there that you don't need to go dig in. Nah. Everyone's got their stuff and, and it's not necessary. It's just... No, this yeah, is like I said, I, I think it, you know, it's going to be a very interesting read and they'll see how a person grew up and who had no um, schooling on what he did for a living. It was basically called uh, School of Hard Knock. All right, Steve, I, I want to thank you for, for being on tonight and you know, a couple of things to look for coming out hopefully in the next couple of years. And I know you're working on some more music. And I know actually, weren't you, you working on a couple of songs of your own too. Um, yeah. So you got your hands full right now on a bunch of stuff <laughs> well i always look for great artists to work with you know i always like um working with new different talent and you know again my goal is always make the best record and what i when i work with different artists i want to see what our competition is and better it that's mm -hmm. how i like because you know now i'm more than a producer i'm a producer writer mixer arranger marketer because i always think of marketing schemes think of a game plan 
because you kind of have to do all of that now. Because, you know, unfortunately, if you're not signed to a label, you better make sure your social media presence is on top. You know, that's. Oh, important. yeah. Absolutely. You know? But, you know, people can get through me with my website, stevethompsonproductions.com, if you're interested. And uh, it was great talking to you, Sean.